Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Can we lay out then mm-hmm. how it is that, in fact, Sanders and Dunn and Wright, they have said something true mm-hmm. about Judaism, and that is that Judaism is, in fact, not a legalism. Yes. That Paul, when he talks about having kept the law perfectly, mm-hmm. is not. he doesn't mean that I've never done anything wrong. He just means that within Judaism, there is allowance made for forgiveness and so that, in fact, it is quite possible that Judaism doesn't collapse in on itself. Yeah. That it, that's quite, you can be a Jew, and you can do Judaism, uh, and there's nothing wrong in that. Mm-hmm. But then the question is, yeah, but what is it that is wrong in the human condition, not simply with Jews, but that is illustrated through both Jews and Gentiles? Mm. Yeah, it's a good question. I think for Paul, obviously the fundamental problem for him is going to be captivity to sin, death, flesh, the powers, all that. And I think part of the way that we can collude with that is to erect our own kind of special groups (laughs) of people (laughs) that we're a part of over against other people. I think that's true. There is a truth to that. I think what Paul wants to do, though, is through the removal of sin, death, flesh, and the liberation of us from captivity to those things, is for us in Christ to transcend those boundary markers, as it were. They're not being erased, right? So when he's saying something like, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male and female, he's not saying that these things are just bad, that to be a Jew is bad, or to be a Gentile is bad, or to be a man or a woman is bad. He's just saying that being a part of this new reality is something that transcends it, and we have a new vantage point on it, right? We can't hold these things too tightly to make sense of our identity, right? So we can't just be hardcore kind of identity politics people <laughs> for him, right? Um, right? Um, because for him, our identity is fundamentally in Jesus Christ. He's the one who tells us who we are, fundamentally. But those other things still matter for what they are. They've just been relativized for him. So I think that would be kind of Paul's way of handling that. And obviously in Ephesians, you get him kind of talking about kind of boundary markers between Jews and Gentiles and all of that. A common reading of that is that Paul is sort of a bit aggressive against Jewish identity there. And I don't think that's quite what's going on there. Andrew Rillera has a great piece on this great uh, article about this. Uh, but yeah, I think, I think Paul's way of understanding this is that in Christ, we transcend these different identity markers, however important they are. And they've been relativized such that we can see that our true identity as human beings um, as has been elected from before the foundation of the world, um, is to be in Christ. And that's that's kind of our primary way of thinking about these things, right? Um, yeah. So Louis, Louis Barton, I, I like his reading, you know, in Galatians, when 
it talks about the curse of the law. You know, you can read that, and in fact, on the surface of it, it does sound like a kind of legalism. But of course, what he goes on to say is, well, actually, and uh, this is uh, Daniel and who's actually yeah, Jewish, yeah. Uh, yeah, who, yeah. who has a great appreciation for this reading of Paul. And that is that the problem is not with works of the law per se, but Paul's argument in both Galatians and in Romans is to take the law and show that the law itself teaches that there's more to the law than works of the law. That, that is, that it's a covenant. Mm. It is a covenantal relationship. This is chapter 4 of Romans, that faith then precedes the law. Mm -hmm. And the law then is not an end in and of itself. And so the problem mm -hmm. it, is not that people would do works of the law the pro or be Jewish. The problem with any of us is that we would imagine that that identity, male, maleness, could be an end in and of itself. Femaleness could yes. be an end yeah. in and of itself. Circumcision. And in the, it's interesting in Galatians, he doesn't do this in Romans, but in Galatians, he ties it, this problem into the elementary principles of the world. That is, mm -hmm. that you've become, you've subjected yourself to these elementary principles, mm -hmm. which may in fact be a reference. You know, what did the Greeks think the elementary mm -hmm. principles were? Well, water, fire, mm -hmm. earth, air. And of course, they didn't just think of them as building blocks alone, but they thought of them in a kind of dial in a dialectic fashion. That it's, you know, water over and against fire, or it's earth over and against air. In the same way, then, that we tend, in other words, the way that we tend to do identity is in and through inclusion, exclusion, mm -hmm. outside, inside, mm -hmm. Jew, Gentile you know, slave-free, male-female, that those basic building blocks of the universe are inherent then, that Judaism itself is more than that, but it too, in as much as one might imagine that through works of the law, they could, that that's sufficient or an end in and of itself. Paul seems to equate idolatry, falling back into Judaism, being subject to the elementary principles and the flesh, as if all of those are the same problem. Mm. It's an mm. interesting array of problems that in which he's, you know, the human predicament, it is true. And of course, this is, I think, depending on how you read Romans 7, but Romans 7 then seems to be a reference back not simply to Exodus or to, to the Mosaic law, but to the law given to Adam. Mm. Right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That is, that this are being bought, uh, bound by the law, imagining that there is life in the law, the way that Paul describes it. You know, I, that, that command that I thought was to give me life, it killed me through the deception. And of course, what he seems to be referencing there is the scene in Genesis 
uh, three, you know, mm -hmm. the, the picture of the fall. Yeah. But the, the eye there, I presume, is Paul, Adam, and every man. And that we all are in this predicament. Yes. Yeah. I agree with that. Um, I, yeah, I like that. I, I really like your emphasis on the issue being that the law, is, for someone to say that the law is an end in itself, that's a problem. Because I think that's exactly what Paul does in something like Romans 4, as you were saying, because obviously fidelity for Abraham precedes God's giving of the law, the Torah to him. Um, I also think in Romans 10, where we get this stuff coming up as well, um, the same sort of thing is is going on there because you have Christ as the, the telos of the law, right? It's not the termination of the law. Um, it's the fulfillment in the best possible sense of the law. The, the um, Christ is sort of the finish line of this race. And so it's in the context of sort of Greco-Roman athletic imagery, actually, um, is that Christ is the sort of finish line of this law. If there is any end there it's christ but it's not an end in terms of the termination of what came before it right the law is still an important thing it's treasured by jewish people it is their uh it, it's a gift of god right so I, I like that that kind of way of thinking about things i do think there is it's unavoidable in romans 2 that works of law and partly in in some of the Galatians text uh, that it is legalistic. And this is where we make the move on this referring to certain opponents that the, that the works of law stuff as against uh, justification through Christ, um, this works of law stuff is being attributed to certain opponents of Paul that are running around saying you need to be, observers of Torah, you need to get circumcised or you're not saved, right? So we would attribute this, that stuff to the, the court of teachers, as we say, right? Um, so it's not a universal account of Jews and Judaism across space and time. Paul's just talking about this certain group of people that have been causing trouble for him and have, have been essentially sheep stealing, as it were, taking some of those converts, right? Um, so... In a practical way, I think that's what works of law is referring to in those letters, and also in Philippians as well. We don't talk about Philippians as much in the, in the book, but I think that those three letters are are uh, useful for understanding what he's doing with works of law. When he's he seems to be framing it legalistically, uh, when he's doing that, I think he's talking about this other kind of rival group of missionaries. Uh, yeah, that's a and that's a, an important part. Uh, an important point that probably we should have made long ago, and that is that there is these readings of Romans and Galatians that if you miss what you just said, and you imagine that Paul is talking about Judaism in general, yeah. Oh well, you, yeah. Well, then Paul's anti-Semitic, <laughs> yeah, right? That's right. Yeah, that's so important to 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 address for sure. Uh, so what's under contention? Uh, you know, is uh, the Judaizers? Yes, are also are they're Christians? They're they're taking the name of Christ, mm -hmm. and this part 
and I'm looking for a correction here. I don't mm -hmm. want to overstate this. It's almost like the Judaizers are doing what justification theory would do in that they too want to make the law the basis. It is the key, the foundation, and certainly they want to work Christ into that, but subsequent to the defining role of the law. That seems to be the heresy that Paul is taking apart and that the false teachers are promoting, and it seems that if that is true, that justification theory is more on the side of the false teachers than on the side of the Apostle Paul. I think you hit the nail on the head there, Paul. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I've thought about this a lot, too. Yeah, I, I think it's it's the, one of the great ironies, really, um, of this is that I think justification theorists think that they have the gospel on their side when I think that they're actually buying into pretty much exactly the theology that Paul is opposing and that Paul's opponents are actually uh, endorsing. It is a great irony, um, and it does make me laugh from time to time <laughs> when, yeah. when you know I get responses from justification theorists who are like, well, no, but this is just what the gospel is you know and, uh, and of course the sad part of this is that i think that what the what paul is fighting for is a real world deliverance from bondage absolutely and that bondage is the bondage that the false teachers would continue in yes and i think this is a psychic bondage in other words yes. i think yes. that we yep. we tend to be self-punishing we mm -hmm. tend to be masochistic. We tend to be oppressive of other people. Mm -hmm. And the reason we're this way is because of this diluted bondage that has a grip on us yep. that Paul is trying to deliver us from, and the false teacher would keep us under this bondage. Inasmuch as justification theory is continuing with the understanding of the foundational role of the law, this is not just a harmful thing. Uh, I, I think it is harmful corporately that we can see the violence, the history of violence, of anti-Semitism, anti-Judaism. But I think it's also uh, uh, a damaging in our own apprehension of ourselves. That is, that I, I really think that that this ju that justification theory continues on in the role that is described in Romans 7, and many folks would, would buy into this, and I think Piper is one of them, that would say this is the normal Christian life, mm. to be self-antagonistic, mm -hmm. to be mm -hmm. alienating, uh, to be uh, you know divided within myself. I mean, what Paul is describing is absent the Holy Spirit, absent prayer, absent actually God the Father is absent, The Trinity, all the members of the Trinity are absent, and I'm afraid that what is being passed on for Christianity, I'm saying this too strong, uh, John, and I want you to correct me, I'm afraid that what is being passed, <laughs> being passed on <laughs> for the cure is the disease. Yeah, yeah, uh, but... I think you're right. I think, yeah, Romans 7 is so fascinating because I think 
because it's bookended by Romans 6 and Romans 8, which are two very liberative texts, right? I mean, we, we even get the answer to this predicament at the end of Romans 7, right? Thank <laughs> I mean, God. What does it say? Yeah. Who will deliver me <laughs> from this good. body of death? Thank God then, Jesus boom, Christ has delivered into, me. We move yeah. into Romans 8, we get the Spirit arriving, who's liberative. Um, we get more, you know, uh, language about being released from captivity. But yeah, Romans 7, especially with the contradictory self, I've thought about this a lot because I, it reminds me of Hegel a little bit. Because um, Hegel is this sort of positive account of the contradictory self, right? Where like, what it means to be a person is just to be alienated from oneself. <laughs> to be a, a sort of split self. Yeah, that's what it means. That's sort of his account of, of what it means to be personal right and people can sit with that and i think there is something there's a truth to that especially in the this sort of time between the times as it were because we're still involved with the reality of sin we're still also at the same time involved in this new resurrected reality so yeah there's going to be some sort of contest going on we're going to feel alienated from ourselves in certain ways we're going to feel self-contradictory we're going to do stuff that we we don't want to do as Paul would say. And when we try to do the good thing, the thing we don't want to do is the thing we do, right? Descriptively, that makes sense. But we can't make sense of this ultimately and theologically unless we have the delivering God through through whom um, we're being released from this. And we can actually live beyond this contradictory self because the resurrection is here. The eschaton has arrived in a certain way, and we're able to act in a different way because we have a new mind. We have a, a resurrected mind. We have the resurrected Christ mind, out of which we can evidence the fruits of the Spirit. We can live in ethical ways. We don't have to just be, you know, stuck with this contradictory contradictory self. Um, we don't have to. We actually have um, another way of living. And that's a wonderful thing. Yeah, that's a wonderful thing. As much as I like Hegel, I, I do think that he's dead wrong on this. I, there is a new, there is a different way to live. You understand this is what Jacques Lacan and Slavoj Zizek are doing with Romans 7. Yes, that's exactly right. Yep. In other words, they're Hegelian. Zizek in particular is especially Hegelian. Yeah. He's And he's reading Paul. He's just saying, Zizek is saying, well, Paul has captured the human condition here. Yep. And, and of course, that's true if you're an atheistic Marxist materialist. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's and as good you, as it gets. Yeah, because you don't have the reality of God through the spirit that actually delivers you from this situation. And like, yeah, he, someone like Zizek has a kind of account of the Holy Spirit, but for him, it's just the community of people like they are the holy spirit for him he quite explicitly says that the community is the spirit and by the community he means this certain kind of communistic um collective right of comrades um which to me like that sounds kind of cool but i don't i wouldn't want to equate that with um, yeah. the holy spirit because to me that's that's a divine being that actually does work on us right it's not something that we in, inhabit collectively yeah. as people 
but yeah, yeah he I, equates I, it with the union organization and yeah Joe basically Hill. basically yeah 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 <laughs> joe hill's not dead the thugs didn't kill him <laughs> joe hill's with us you know yeah. communally right. and that's right. his account of the holy spirit right unfortunately the healing of the gospel and i think that's what we're talking about i yeah. think there is healing to be had there is liberation from bondage to be had which maybe brings us to the next point here and that is that in the book i think you rightly focus on revelation yeah and i think this ties into an a kind of, a kind of apocalyptic understanding mm -hmm. but why why that why that focus on revelation yeah i think this goes back to the first question too where we're we were talking about why i think that justification theory is talking about a different god uh is because it's not getting its information primarily from how god has chosen to reveal god's self right how god is elected to um tell us what god's really like so it's not just revelation it's god's self revelation is what we're talking about right um and the way that paul talks about this is he just uses the word apocalypsis which just means unveiling disclosing revealing something so the reason why i think it's important initially is that we're trying to be attentive to the way that god has chosen to show us what god is like <laughs> which is in god's self-revelation right um we're trying to attend to that and then follow from that what god is like um what it means for god to save and to rescue god's cosmos according to this what it means to be a human being within this all of those sorts of things flow from that initial starting point the difference it makes is if you start somewhere else as you know justification theory is a great example of this right if you start with the the person searching for god um, you get an entirely different picture of reality that doesn't seem to align with what Christ is actually revealing at all. Because as we were talking about, it tends to capture any insight from, from Christ. So I, I, I think this is the reason why it's important to start there is because this is how God has chosen for us to start. <laughs> um, not to put things too simplistically, and but I do think this gets overlooked is that we're not just saying revelation is is a good place to start kind of arbitrarily it's because this is the way that god has graciously given us and included us in knowledge of god's self that's i think the key point He's um, given we don't us make this up no. yeah we don't make this up for ourselves this is how god has included us in god's knowledge of god's self because that's what revelation is first mm -hmm. and foremost <laughs> it's god's knowledge of god's self that we've been included in through participation and then we get drawn into that kind of self-knowledge of god yeah i don't mean to back up here but it, it yeah. is such a I, I appreciated a part of the book so much first of all what you did with you know i i yes ep sanders james dunn they've done a mm -hmm. they, they've helped us a little bit yeah but have not really solved anything yep but nt right yeah has been a, a, a you know he wants to be part of an apocalyptic kind of understanding 
but I'm never quite sure how he fits into this. Can you run down a little bit? Can you straighten us out? What N.T. Wright is the project there and the limitations of that project? Sure. Good question. Because I think you're right. He does He does make the sort of revelational move from time to time. He's, he's kind of ambivalent there, which is why he can be kind of confusing. Um, and I, I, we corresponded before, but I, I find him confusing too, but I, I think I've, I've, I think, I think I've got him. I think I've figured it out. Um, so what he's doing, Wright is really concerned about sort of a canonical approach to all of this. So we're trying to think about the entire sweep of the Bible initially, trying to hold everything together kind of in that way. Um, and so when he comes to Paul, he let sees. Me, let me yeah, ask you something here. Mm -hmm. When you say canonical, mm -hmm. is what you're saying historical? That is, that what right is it true that what he's wanting to do is not what is being done in a Bartian or in in a Christocentric understanding? That is, that we read history retrospectively. But in when you say canonical, does that mean he wants to approach? the New Testament on the basis of the Old Testament, uh, the law and who Christ is on the basis of, or, or who Christ is on the basis of what we have in, in Judaism. Yes, basically. That's a good clarification. Um, yeah, so he, the way that he would talk about it is that he's wanting to take the entire sweep of the Bible. But you're right. What he means is he's wanting to uh, begin history in a certain way and have Christ be a part of that in an important way as the sort of fulfillment of this history, especially the history of Israel, right? So Jesus is kind of Israel in person, <laughs> as he would say, and has said many, many times. Um, so he, he has this sort of schema in that way that he, he wants to be thinking about this sort of like really clean kind of line leading up to, to Christ that Christ fulfills. So he talks about, you know, creation, the fall, you have God's promises to Abraham, get the giving of the Torah. Israel kind of ends up having all of these kind of failures along the way as well, having to do with the law. They end up being disobedient. God punishes them. Um, so the, there's a sort of an array of plights that end up happening in, in his reading of the Old Testament. Um, the, the key one being the exile. Um and Israel is sort of in exile because of their disobedience, right? And this leads up to him into the New Testament kind of period. Israel's in the exile right up to that point, right? Historically, that doesn't really hold, but uh, people have pressed him on this, but he's really kind of committed to this kind of construct. Then we get Christ arriving, who brings with him as Yahweh in person for right um brings with him basically the return of Yahweh to Zion and the return of the Shekinah to the temple so we get a bunch of fulfillment stuff happening uh there once Christ arrives now you can kind of sense possibly what I'm doing here notice that everything is on this kind of long journey toward something happening right you start off you get a fall get the torah 
that doesn't really work. You, it kind of introduces a bunch of different plights. Um, you're in exile. You're just kind of waiting. You're struggling. And then Christ arrives. He starts to fulfill this stuff. Now, what needs to happen for you to be a part of that? Uh, well, faith is involved for him to be a part of this. Uh, he calls it the badge of faith, usually. Um, he does have a certain conception of the faithfulness of Christ being the way into this new kind of situation. But what happens is Christ gets executed, and it still looks an awful lot like penal substitution, where Christ shoulders all of this previous sin of Israel, all of these previous kind of missteps, the issues to do with disobedience to Torah, all of this sort of stuff gets kind of dumped on the Christ, right? And then he gets executed kind of on our behalf in that way. So we still kind of need to contract into this. We still need to have faith in this to become a part of, as he would say, the Messiah people. Now, a key thing that happens there for him is that when, uh, especially someone who is Jewish, when someone who is Jewish responds to Christ and wants to be a part of God's people, what happens? He says this very explicitly multiple times. They are shorn of the symbolic praxis of Judaism. Their practices are erased. Okay? That stuff is left behind. What does this sound like already? This sounds like justification theory, but it's justification theory cast in a different sort of way, in a more historical, kind of biblical, narratival way. It's not just about the individual. It's about this whole people journeying in this way, going through different plights, being in exile. Um, and then the Messiah arrives, shoulders all of their sin. And then you have to kind of become a part of that through faith. Um, but what happens is you have to leave behind all of this stuff that was a key part of who you are as a Jewish person. <laughs> it's the same thing. It's just dressed up in a different way. Okay, so that's why... It doesn't really solve anything to just expand this narrative to try to make it more quote-unquote historical or biblical. It just exacerbates this problem and really it 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 makes it it makes the problem sort of writ large in a way that you wouldn't be able to see it before. He's kind of an obvious example of like uh like it, it it's almost like watching something on your phone. So you have JT on your phone. And then you cast it onto a big screen in front of yeah. you. It's much easier to see that big screen. And when you see it, it's like, oh, gosh, this is what's going on here as well. Right? I think that's basically what's what's going on with Wright. Um, which, and he, as we talk about in the book, there's a lot of good takeaways with Wright. Um, but I think he's he's basically just rehashing the same old stuff. And this has been Campbell's confrontation i yes. suppose with right that yes. that to just say and i'm never quite sure he wants to call himself or i guess an apocalyptic a, take a kind of apocalyptic approach but I, i'm not seeing it yeah so what he means by apocalyptic is different so he he thinks that apocalyptic should be reserved for the literary genre of apocalyptic so something like the book of revelation of daniel that sort of stuff so him and christopher roland 
are pretty big on this. So they're really skeptical of like people like Douglas and myself and a whole, a whole bunch of other people who call apocalyptic what it is, which is it's leaning on Paul's use of the word apocalypsis <laughs> and making that kind of the key thing. Whereas for them, they think it's a genre of literature that never calls itself apocalyptic um, but they wow. think that we're kind of the ones making it up um but that said he does he will say that christ reveals something new about god only after he's already introduced this giant narrative so again you have the capture of this stuff that's going to happen right i think that's that's one of the the important thing is, is that even when he's trying to think in the light of Jesus about history, about Israel, about all of that, he's already kind of done all of the work up to that point. So Christ actually isn't going to do any any real work for his his project, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, and and I really like that part of the book because I, I have to admit I've I've used right, I've I've appreciated some of the things he said. But I've also found I've been confounded by him. Uh, wait a minute, isn't this the same thing again? You know, especially in regard to penal substitution, it just a kind of he, he's got a fancier way of describing it. <laughs> yeah, and he's a he's a great writer. Um, yeah, yeah, he is. Um, but yeah, it is a fancier way of describing it, and he, he's yeah. He doesn't always say things that clearly. And that's part of why I think people get confused by him who are trying to figure out, okay, what is he actually committed to here? Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's it's difficult. But I, I think we we figured him out. Um he has a book coming out this uh next year as well on Romans. Oh uh, well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what it, the book your your book does several things for us it do, i i think it does several favors to the reader and one of the things is the section on sanctification yeah mm -hmm. tell us what happens where where that notion comes from and what sure. happens to it in your understanding yeah so sanctification if you're talking about the melanchthon chapter yes yeah specifically yeah um so a lot of what we're doing as we're trying to figure out our solution and kind of give our solution to this is we see two different sets of data in poll one as we describe in terms of a transformational participatory resurrectional gospel and we see this as occupying the vast majority of what paul wrote and then you have this minority set of texts that we dub sort of justification texts just under about 10 percent of what what paul wrote um the question is can you actually coordinate these two data sets in a way that's coherent or not so what melanchthon does philip melanchthon kind of a, a lesser known reformer um what he does is go ah i have an idea <laughs> i've picked up the bible i've gone to paul's first letter in in the New Testament, which is Romans, um, canonically, it comes first. Uh, it looks like the justification stuff is up front, and then he kind of goes into this other stuff about transformation, about being in Christ, all of that. 
what if this first set of texts is justification? And what if the stuff that follows from that is sanctification? And we just sequence them like that. So the, the 10% or less than 10% is justification, followed by sanctification, which comes after. So you get justified. And then once you get justified, you become a part of the church. You get moved into this other phase where the spirit arrives, starts doing transformative work on you. Um, a lot of people kind of think about uh, Christianity this way. You move from justification to sanctification. It's, it's quite a Protestant way of thinking, although not exclusively. But this this is kind of the way that Melanchthon runs with it. Can I say it in a yeah, different yeah. way? Sure. You get you get saved, you get justified, mm -hmm. and then after that's taken care of, you can do that other stuff that we yeah. call sanctification. Right. It's kind of an afterthought. It is. You're exactly right. <laughs> so that's that's kind of how someone like Melanchthon tries to deal with that. That's a bad solution for various reasons that we go through in the book, namely the God that's being attested to in the justification material and the God that's being attested to in the quote-unquote sanctification material. Um, these are irreducibly different accounts of God, irreducibly ac different accounts of knowledge of God, irreducibly different accounts of how we relate to this God and how this God relates to us. Um, one is very contractual, one is very uh, very unconditional and loving all the way through. We've talked about this stuff too, but what, once you try to sequence these things and kind of put them together in that way, it doesn't work coherently. God can't just shift over into being a, an entirely different God <laughs> once you get to sanctification. It just doesn't work. We're talking about two different things. As we say, you can't hitch a trailer to a fish, as it were. <laughs> these are two different things that aren't meant to be fit together and never really were. These are two different as we say, gospels. Let me let me clarify yeah. a little bit. So when mm -hmm. we're when we're talking about Melanchthon, we're talking about he has these. What you're saying is about ten percent of the texts mm -hmm. found located mainly in Romans and in Galatians, but mainly in Romans. Mm -hmm. And that with your understanding and this understanding, well, actually, where people are getting justification theory is based upon the fusion of a false teacher and the teaching of Paul. Yes. And once we clear that up, mm -hmm. there is no such notion as justification as being defined in regard to the law. Right. Very and that so. then means that we're bringing in all of these other texts we're mm -hmm. always talking, see if I'm saying this right, uh, tell me if I'm not, correct me. All of these texts are about salvation. Yes. But salvation is not this one-off event in which such as accepting Jesus in your heart. or it, a Salvation is a process. Mm -hmm. And there are salvific things that we do. There are things that we participate. In other words, when we talk about a participation in Christ, that is salvific. Yes. So that 
the the category sanctification, we don't need it. Hmm. Is that is that wrong? Too much? I think you're basically right about the category of sanctification. I I don't really have a problem with the language of sanctification. What I do have an issue with is when it's placed in the kind of sequential system that follows from a doctrine of justification by faith alone. Using the language of being sanctified, no problem with that. If we're using it to name, you know, this gospel that we see in 90% of what Paul wrote, totally fine with calling salvation sanctification. I think that's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As long as we know what we're actually referring to. Um, I have no reason to reject that terminology unless what's being presupposed there is that it's something that's following from um, and, and basically being, as we were talking about, sort of an afterthought. When I think the, it's the main thing. Sanctification yeah. is the gospel. Sanctification yeah. is salvation. Yes. Yep. Let me take let me press you on it. I'll sure. take you further. In other words, what we tend to do is once we do the justification thing, and you know that and, and we have that take, we got saved, mm -hmm. then we have all these other categories. Mm -hmm. Uh so that I had a professor that even talked about revelation as a separate thing from salvation but what we're what what you're describing what we're describing no revelation is salvation yes uh there are the the categorization the separation of things in this mode it's nothing wrong with the language of oh yeah we want to be sanctified yeah <laughs> yeah of course we do right right, right. uh but the point is that that is also salvation Yes. Because we've already we've redefined the term. Revelation is salvation. Participation mm -hmm. is salvation. We're saved in and through the body of Christ, the church. The whole thing is salvation. And we yeah. can't separate it out in and, and imagine that we can isolate one event as salvation and these other events as actually secondary. Yes, that's right. Um, T.F. Torrance has a great way of talking about this, leaning on Karl Barth. Um, he wrote a great article called Karl Barth and the Latin Heresy, which in that piece, what he's getting at is uh, that, the, especially in the West, we have this sort of formal external logic of talking about the order of salvation or ordo salutis, where you move from one thing to the other, to the other, to the other. And these are discrete sort of categories. They're external. They just sort of happen out there, right? Um, he sees this as a huge problem and actually the result of basically an unconscious kind of um, absorption of Aryan dualism for him. Uh, that we actually really need to be thinking about really the internal stuff about being drawn into Christ and into God and into God's saving purposes through the spirit. This is not something you can sort of, you know, chop up into different discrete moments in salvation. Um, the whole thing is just God's activity, God's saving dynamic for the cosmos. And the moment we're thinking in terms of these external categories, we're just getting it wrong. We're not thinking in the way that God is, has revealed God's self, in the way that in the sort of salvation that God is is uh, affecting 
So um, yeah, I think you're exactly right on that. And yeah, it just reminded me of, of TF Torrance um, at that moment. Yeah. Again, I had to come, you know, it took me, I, I was literally taught. I mean, this, my, I had a professor wrote a book that he separated, of course, and then you get the separation, uh, you know, that you actually get one member of the deity, the father pitted against the son. You get revelation. In other words, once you do that, and you can have reconciliation through the what the Christ does through penal substitution, actually, you can do that whole thing, and it's just an end in and of itself, and it yeah. doesn't refer outside of itself. That's right. Yep. Uh, we don't even have to be included in that. No. <laughs> yeah. It's just an external kind of mechanism that's kind of at work. Um, yeah. It's and then you weird. can talk about revelation is telling us about this thing that happened in the mind of God. That's right. And so yep. it's a step removed. So you can just once you do once you make that move, you can just break it all down. Yep. And 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 what I said originally, I'm going to take back because I think what that does it complicates everything. And I think what we're describing in the end is actually quite simple. Yeah, it is simpler. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, that it, yes, it's all encompassing. Yes, it's cosmic. But you don't, in, in other words, I think that the systems that we have, they become so detailed and denominations, you know, focused on a particular, well, oh, well, yeah. we need to do the sanctification part. We need to work on that. Or we need, I think that, that we've gotten those folk, you know, that we, we become obsessed with a particular focus that need not ever happened if we leave it as, oh, no, this is a, this is the work of God. Yep. It is all part of the salvation that is being worked out absolutely this has been a wonderful conversation john i again let me emphasize i think <laughs> this book is such good news for people who may not have may not know completely or have been confounded and in this i you know i'm saying this with total empathy and sympathy because man i you know i think it's a long journey that many of us have taken uh and it's such a relief when we hear i think the unadulterated gospel and yeah. i think that's what if you know i think that is the key here that what you and douglas campbell are doing that you're you're actually removing an obstacle that so many people have stumbled over yeah yeah thank you so much i mean I hope so. And I I hope and I pray that this is this book will be um something that helps people think harder about God, um, think more clearly about the biblical text, um, think about Paul, maybe in a way that they've never really thought about before. Um You had to sum it all up uh, yeah. in a in a kind of conclusion of what what is the difference that uh, that it, this approach is going to make? How how would you sum it up? I would hope that the difference that this book would make is for people to be able to hear, maybe even for the first time, 
that God actually loves them um, and has loved them before they were even created. That God, from before all ages, chose them in love. This is what we get from the the great uh, the great first chapter of Ephesians. Um, that all of this stuff happened out of love, and if if the only thing that people get out of this, even if they don't buy it, some of the particulars, but if they get to a clear sense of God's love for them, um, and that that they, they can start feeling that in a way that they they never had before, I would be happy with that because that's that's the start of something great. Once you start to sense and start to really feel and and um. And participate in that love i think you're going to be on the right track um and you're going to be able to see yourself differently you're going to be able to see the people around you differently you're going to be able to see uh god differently perhaps um than a god that you're not sure of if he actually loves you or not but i i really want the book to be about and i think the book just is about god loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life yeah. and always has that's what the book's about <laughs> yeah yeah, it, it, I think it's such a huge, literally think that it th this understanding of God just sort of changes up our, our understanding of the world and ourselves and other people. And this is the gospel. I mean, this is what the gospel is supposed to do for us. So, Jonathan, thanks, thanks so much for, for the time. Well, thank you so much, Paul, for inviting me. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org. Dot org.